This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit cmfnow.com to purchase this book. Victory in Jesus, the Bright Hope of Postmillennialism by Greg L. Bonson Edited by Robert R. Booth Copyright 1999 Bonson Family Trust Covenant Media Press In Memory of Greg L. Bonson who now abides in the presence of his Lord. Chapter 5 The Person, Work, and Present Status of Satan The intellectual irony of the previous decade is that, while secular and post-radical theologians have consorted to nullify the supernatural deity of Scripture, there has been a tidal wave of publications and reprints on Satan and occultism. God may be meaningless or dead, but Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, or so we are told. A separate section devoted exclusively to literature on occultism and demonology has of necessity been set up in many Christian and secular bookstores. Only someone dedicated solely to Satanology could keep abreast of the literature and social developments centering around these topics. The ancient church at Thyatira lived amidst a society economically dominated by trade guilds, politically dominated by immoral pagans, culturally dominated by licentious activities, and religiously dominated by idolatry and mysticism. Like the church in this day, the church at Thyatira had to be reminded that all power and authority in heaven and on earth belonged to the resurrected Messiah, as seen in Matthew 28.18 and that he promised to exercise control over the nations through his people. Revelation 2, 26-27 It was God's kingdom, not Satan's, which would have the dominance. However, as though Satan wielded the central power over history, a heretical and mystical sect within the church prided themselves in an alleged doctrinal comprehension, as they say, of the deep things of Satan. Revelation 2.24 Their emphasis fell on the prince of darkness rather than the light of the world, and yet through their concentrated probing into the things of Satan, these Jezebelites deceptively thought they had improved their Christian walk. A large segment of the church today has also concentrated its pessimistic attention on Satan and his powers. Along with the flood of literature on this topic has come the virtual claim by some authors to disclose the deep things of Satan, and the claim of many other authors that Satan is the key factor in the playing out of the present dispensation. Like the church at Thyatira, the modern church has lost sight of the fact that the darkness cannot overcome the light. John 1.5 as a result, it cowers before the works of darkness rather than reproving them. Ephesians 5.11 Reams are written, despairingly turning the world over to Satan and the Antichrist. The theme of overcoming, which plays a crucial part of the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2-3, through 3, has been either reinterpreted or expunged. Satan has come to occupy center stage until sometime after the Secret Rapture, the ultimate retreatist doctrine. And the solid conviction of Martin Luther seems to have become eclipsed. 
and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little world shall fail him and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us we will not fear for god hath willed his truth to triumph through us the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him in light of the information about satan which is reaching the publication in these days the believer needs to be aware of the perspective on satan which is set forth in the scriptures of the new covenant only such revelational teaching provides a proper standard against which current studies can be measured for accuracy orthodoxy and ethical value the following pages will attempt to summarize what the new testament reveals about satan and his work we concentrate on the revelation of the new covenant out of consideration for the limitations of an article-length study but more importantly because of the momentous and considerably relevant alteration of satan's status in the interadventual period our conclusions shall be organized under eight important designations of satan in the new testament these designations themselves conveniently summarize the various facets reflected in the biblical doctrine of Satan, as well as leading away from the beguilement of Thyatira. The Worthless One Belier Second Corinthians 6.15 is a good place to look for a general characterization of Satan. In the course of exhorting believers to refrain from compromise with the unbelieving world of sin, Paul sets out a series of antithetical contrasts. Righteousness has no fellowship with lawlessness. Verse 14, Romans 6:19, Hebrews 1:9. Just as light is incompatible with darkness, as seen in Romans 13:12, Ephesians 5:8, 1 Peter 2:9, 1 John 1:5. The forces of righteousness and light have a captain over them even as the forces of lawlessness and darkness have a captain over them. Paul accordingly makes the contrast more personal. He advances from the more abstract ethical terms to a contrast between two named individuals, Christ and Belier, which is one of the few variations of Belial. The antithesis between these two is perhaps enhanced by the fact that in the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, Belier denotes not only the first fallen angel and accuser of God's people, that is, Satan, but also the Antichrist. On one hand we have Christ, God's anointed. He is God's elect and favored one, one in whom is found utmost worth, and one who deserves highest praise. The one whom God anoints is filled with the Holy Spirit, as in Isaiah 61.1, and typifies adherence to righteousness. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, 
hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 45, 7. In comparison to the value of Christ, all other things must be esteemed as loss and dung. Philippians 3, 8. Thus, God's anointed, the Messiah, is the epitome of lawfulness and is of the highest worth. But over against Christ, there is Beliar. In the Old Testament, Belial was used as a descriptive adjective for wicked men, especially those who were guilty of gross immorality and rebellion against authority. It had the general sense of worthlessness, without profit, benefit, or use. Through a slight modification of the word's derivation, the rabbinic tradition interpreted Belial as one without yoke, that is, one who is rebellious, unrestrained, or lawless. The idea that Belial is one who refused the law's yoke is reinformed by the fact that the Septuagint translates Belial as lawlessness, both in a generic sense and as applying to persons. Intertestamental literature definitely identified Satan as Belial. Similarly, Paul uses Belial as a title for Satan in 2 Corinthians 6.15, thereby taking him as the paradigm of lawlessness and worthlessness. Belial and Christ stand in irresolvable antagonism. There is no harmony, symphony is cognate to the original Greek word, between the two. Here, then, we have a basic characterization with which we can begin our analysis of Satan. Paul presents him not simply as a principle, symbol, or impersonal force, but as the coordinate member in his series of contrasts to the person of Christ. Satan is a person. He cannot be rationalized away as pre-scientific myth or literary personification. He moves, 1 Peter 5.8, works, Ephesians 2.2, 2, knows, Revelation 12.12, 12, speaks, Matthew 4.3, plots, 2 Corinthians 2.11, desires, Luke 22.31, disputes, Jude 9, deceives, 2 Corinthians 11.3, feels emotion, Revelation 12.12, 12, 1 Timothy 3.6, James 2.19, tempts, 1 Thessalonians 3.5, makes promises, Matthew 4.9, sins, 1 John 3.8, and engages in many other activities of a personal nature. Of course, Satan is more than simply a person, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.15. He is a worthless and lawless person, the personal representative of darkness and unrighteousness. From what the New Testament teaches us, the fall of Satan is to be attributed to his apostasy from the truth, John 8:44, and condemnable pride, 1 Timothy 3:6. Arrogating to himself prerogatives which were not his own, Satan did not stand firm in the truth. Consequently, he did not keep his original condition or rank, as seen in Jude 6. When he fell, he led astray a host of angels with him, as Jude 6 indicates by mentioning a plurality of apostate angels. Indeed, 
unless the mention of a third of the stars being cast onto the earth in revelation twelve four is merely a figure used to express the size or influence of the red dragon with respect to the imagery of that passage it would seem that a significant minority of the angels symbolized by stars as seen in revelation nine one where satan appears as a star fell along with him just as they are later deprived of certain powers along with him as seen in revelation twelve nine not content with simply this following satan also applied himself to the project of winning man's disobedient allegiance to him historically he is responsible for beguiling eve second corinthians eleven three and thereby initiating through his lies the spiritual death of the human race as seen in john eight forty four the disapprobation felt towards satan by the inspired writers is manifest from their designation of him as the evil one matthew six thirteen thirteen nineteen thirty eight john seventeen fifteen ephesians six sixteen first john two thirteen through fourteen three twelve five verses eighteen through nineteen slanderer matthew four one eleven luke four two and six first timothy three six through seven second timothy two twenty six first peter five eight revelation twelve nine and twenty two adversary first peter five eight enemy matthew thirteen twenty eight through twenty nine accuser revelation twelve ten destroyer first corinthians ten ten and a world ruler of darkness ephesians six twelve they recoil from him as a liar and murderer john eight forty four angel of the bottomless pit revelation nine eleven roaring lion first peter five eight red dragon revelation twelve verses three through seventeen and twenty verse two and the old serpent revelation twelve nine revelation twenty two second corinthians eleven three he represents nothing constructive profitable or good finally second corinthians six fifteen portrays satan as an utter opposition to the person of christ and everything he represents there is no point at which satan and belier can harmonize with christ satan is devoted to the work of hindering and destroying the kingdom of god whether or not that is a realistic aim to that end he appears not only as the tempter of the first adam but also as the tempter of jesus christ the second adam immediately after jesus's baptism he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil who made an all-out assault upon the divine approval jesus had received at his baptism as well as presuming authority over the kingdoms of the world matthew four one through eleven satan endeavored to induce jesus to betray his calling submit to the kingdom of darkness and thus to abandon the establishment of god's kingdom satan was fighting for his life just as jesus persevered in the face of the devilish onslaught in order to redeem reclaim and remake the lives of his elect people the confrontation in the wilderness was a deadly serious battle between two kingdoms 
and Christ won that battle where both Satan and Adam had failed, not through autonomous power, but through complete obedience to the will of God. Unlike Satan, Jesus was willing to humble himself, as seen in Philippians 2, 7 through 8, and he abided in the truth, as seen in John 1, 14 and 17. In addition to showing us the principal defeat of Satan, this account also reveals Satan's character as the bitter antagonist to God's anointed and the Messiah's kingdom. He expresses this antagonism by working in individuals, Ephesians 2.2, both body, Luke 13.16, and mind, Luke 22.3. By working through the natural world, Luke 8.23 and 24, where Jesus rebuked the waves just as he rebuked the demons, that is Mark 9.25, by working in social behavior, Luke 8.27, and relations, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, by working in intellectual matters, 1 Timothy 4, 1, by working in political affairs, Revelation 12 and 13, and by working in religious affairs, whether in false sects, 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, or in the true way by distorting, Galatians 4, 8 through 9, and competing with, Matthew 13, 39, the preaching of the gospel. There is no facet of life which Satan will avoid in his project of hindering Christ's kingdom. He is a worthless person who at no point harmonizes with Christ. He is, in short, Belier. The Prince of the Demons According to Scripture, not only are there angels of God, Matthew 22.30, Luke 12.8, Luke 15.10, John 1.51. But by contrast, there are also angels of Satan. Matthew 25.41, 2 Corinthians 12.7, Revelation 12.7 and 9. These are designated demons. While there are many daimonia, or demons, mentioned in the Bible, there is only one diabolos, the devil. A significant minority of the created angels sinned along with Satan, and together with him were cast out. Second Peter 2.4, Revelation 12.4, thereby becoming demons under the leadership of the devil. Accordingly, Satan is called the prince of demons in Matthew 9.34. Paul denominates him the prince of the powers of the air, Ephesians 2.2, and in Revelation 9.11 he is considered king over the swarm from the abyss. Just as Christ is the head of his church, the kingly ruler over his disciples, so also Satan is the leader of the demonic host. He has an army of disobedient spirits at his command. These demons are wicked, unclean, and vicious, Matthew eight twenty eight ten one, Mark five two through five, Mark nine twenty, Acts nineteen fifteen. Moreover, there are degrees of wickedness among them, Matthew twelve forty five, and some are harder to exercise than others, Matthew seventeen twenty one. Some scriptures lay out various categories of angels and demons, Ephesians one twenty one. 3.10, 6.12, 5.17, 
Colossians 1, 16, 2, verses 10 and 15, which suggests the possibility of a hierarchy of demons. Although the various combinations of titles makes it impossible for us to establish firmly what the gradation would be. This much is certain. Satan is their prince or ruler, surpassing all in authority as well as in degree of wickedness and strength. Not a few have held that Matthew 12:43-45 and Mark 5:12 demonstrate that demons long to occupy physical bodies and that this is their primary modus operandi. However, the former passage seems to be a parable pertaining not merely to individuals, but to whole cultures or societies that attempt to be neutral toward Christ. The latter passage most likely represents simply a diversionary tactic and an unsuccessful one at that, on the part of the demons. But whether or not possession of physical, especially human, bodies, is standard procedure for demons, the New Testament's accounts of demon possession are plenteous. There are at least 52 instances of it in the Gospels alone, where the word demonic occurs 55 times, and the phrase unclean or evil spirits appears 28 times. Classic instances of demon possession are those of the two men of Gergesenes, Matthew eight twenty eight through thirty four and parallels, the dumb man, Matthew nine thirty two through thirty three, the blind and dumb man, Matthew twelve twenty two and parallels, the daughter of the Syrophoenician, Matthew fifteen twenty two through twenty nine and parallels, the lunatic child, Matthew seventeen. 14 through 18 and parallels the man in the synagogue mark 1:23 through 26 and parallels and mary magdalene mark 16:9 and parallels the bible fully intends for us to understand by demon possession an actual occurrence not merely a metaphorical description the gospel accounts clearly distinguish between sickness and demon possession sometimes as separate phenomena, and sometimes as cause and effect. Matthew 4.24, 8.16, Mark 1.32. It is noteworthy that Luke, a physician in his day, mentions both separately. Luke 4.33-36 and 40-41, Luke 6.17-18, Luke 9.1-2. Moreover, the Lord addressed demons themselves as distinct from the person possessed, Matthew 17:18 and 8:32, Mark 1:25 and 34, and Mark 9:25. Finally, possession could be by a plurality of demons, Mark 5:9 and 16:9, Luke 11:26, and could take swine as its object. Both of these facts would be superfluous embellishment if demon possession were simply a mythological way of speaking about mental illness. Ironically, if anything is a myth, it is the alleged phenomena of mental illness, not demon possession. Demon possession could have a profound and dominating influence on one's body, Mark 9:17-26, will, John 13:27. Words, Mark one twenty three, and mind, Mark five one through eighteen, the demoniac could lose control over himself, and that against his will, as seen in Luke nine thirty nine. 
The possibility of demon possession in this day will be discussed briefly below. The Bible gives further information about demons. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air, an illusion which has at least three lessons to it. First, the demonic controllers of sinful rebellion, or darkness, over whom Satan rules, are incorporeal powers of darkness, as seen in Ephesians 6.12. Second, these spiritual agents fill the air, as seen in Ephesians 3.10-12, or occupy the atmosphere around the earth. That is, Paul vividly portrays them as inhabiting our world as being spiritual forces within reach of us and with whom we contend, as seen in Ephesians 6.12. And thirdly, because non-material evil powers are at work throughout the world, they create an ethical atmosphere or pervading outlook in a culture. Notice how power of the air is parallel to age, spirit, course of this world in Ephesians 2.2. Because the sons of disobedience have the prince of power of the air working in them, they walk in the vanity of their minds. Ephesians 4.17. A society or culture can come into an intellectual frame of mind which is properly designated demonic. It can develop an atmosphere of opinion which is worthless, lawless, and destructive just as Belier himself is. Nevertheless, it must not be thought that Satan and his demonic army are ultimately independent of God, constituting a genuine rival force in the universe. In Revelation 9, 1-11, we read that Satan, as angel of the abyss, releases his demons, symbolized as terrible and powerful locusts, upon the earth. Notice, however, that they are subject to God's control. Verse 1. Authority to open the abyss had to be granted by God to Satan, the fallen star. And God's restraint. Verse 5. The power of which the demons have is both limited by God and granted to them by God. This plague of locusts, along with those of hail, Revelation 8.7, and darkness, Revelation 8.12, are meant to hearken back to the ten plagues sent by God on Egypt. In Revelation 9, God is represented as punishing the new Egypt, where Christ was crucified, Jerusalem, as seen in Revelation 11.8, by unleashing the terror of demons upon its unbelief and rebellion as a form of historical torment and judgment. While Satan may be prince of the demons, he nevertheless receives his power from God alone. The demonic host is, in the final analysis, at God's command, doing his sovereign bidding and serving his divine ends. Whatever terrible work the demons do in the world is done under the sway of the Lord God Almighty and done in terms of his wise plan. When demonic activity is rampant in a society, we should see there God's punishment upon rejection of or apostasy from the gospel. That is, judgment upon the demonic atmosphere of mind which has developed. Not only does scripture teach us that God alone is the ultimate sovereign and thus 
that the demons are under his control, restraint, and direction, but it teaches that even now these demons are enchained by God. God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, the vilest province of hell, committing them to chains, the oldest and most reliable reading, rather than pits, of darkness, reserved unto judgment, Second Peter 2.4. Jude confirms that the angels who did not keep their first rank, but abandoned their proper domain, the position assigned by God under his rule, have been kept by God in everlasting fetters or bonds. The word is used of chains, for example, in Luke 8.29, Acts 16.26, and Acts 22.30. Under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Jude 6. The demons have been under lock and key since the moment of their apostasy. There has never been any question that whatever activities they engage in are yet under the governance of God, who is but setting them aside for ultimate damnation. The work of demons must be viewed constantly in terms of the chains that now restrain them. Their doom is sure, as Revelation 20.10 and Matthew 25.41 teach. The lake of fire has been prepared for the eternal doom of Satan and his demons. This is now their proper habitat and destination. These passages show us, in passing, that the fact that the demons are enchained does not mean that they are completely devoid of power and utterly without influence in the world. They have been committed to chains from the time of their fall into sin, and yet the gospel records show them to have been extensively active, just as Revelation 9 teaches that God makes them serve His purposes in history. Thus, being enchained does not imply being destroyed or immobilized. It simply signifies that the demons are strictly under God's control and restrained in their activities. Their operations never set them free from the ultimate end to which God's chains have assigned them. God observes a kind of lex talionis. The angels who did not keep their first position are now being kept by God for eternal damnation. The Destroyer, Abaddon, Apollyon we turn now to examine the nature and effect of Satan's work in the world. Looking back briefly to Revelation 9, where Satan is portrayed as the leader of a host of demons who are unleashed in judgment upon Jerusalem, we notice that the work of these demons is described as that of terrible destruction, darkness, verse 2, terror and despondence, verse 6. In general, they worked to produce darkness and wickedness seen in Ephesians 6.12. And when they are unleashed in historical judgment, as they were in Jerusalem's tribulation of A.D. 70, circumstances become so desperate that men prefer death to living, as seen in Luke 23.27-30. Therefore, the influence of Satan's host is dreadful. Darkness, despair, death, and destruction. 
Satan's work is not constructive. It aims to deprive men and the world of the goodness of life and the creation through the negative forces of disobedience, disorder, deception, and disease. Consequently, Revelation 9.11 assigns a descriptive name to Satan, a name which characterizes the effect of Satan's operations. The name is given first in Hebrew and then in Greek, lest there be any mistake about its meaning. He is Abaddon, the epithet for Hades in the Old Testament. Job 26.2, and Proverbs 15.11, 2720, Psalm 88.12, meaning destruction. It is personified in Job 28.22, which makes the reference in Revelation 9.11 especially appropriate since there Satan is designated the angel of the bottomless pit. He personifies the province from which he operates, bringing hell on earth, as we say. The personification of hell in Satan is indicated in the Greek form of his name, Apollyon. This is the participle for the verb meaning to destroy, thus being rendered destroyer. Satan is destruction and indeed the destroyer himself, as seen in 1 Corinthians 10.10 and Hebrews 2.14. His goals are purely negative, and he affects nothing beautiful, true, or good. Satan can bring sickness and bodily ailments, such as convulsions, Mark 9.18.20.26, self-injury, Luke 4.35, Mark 9.18 and 22, Deafness and dumbness, Mark nine seventeen through twenty seven. Luke the physician speaks of a woman who had a spirit caused infirmity, being bound by Satan with a spinal deformity for eighteen years, Luke thirteen eleven and sixteen. When demons are cast out of a man, he is said to be healed or made whole, Luke eight thirty six. Paul's thorn in the flesh is considered a messenger of Satan. 2 Corinthians 12.7 And Peter summarizes the ministry of Jesus by saying that he went about healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Acts 10.38 Satan works decay and misery in the physical world. He also has the power to bring certain circumstances under his control. Through the action of the council, Satan hindered Paul from returning to Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 2.18 through political persecution, Satan can have Christians cast into prison, Revelation 2.10. Revelation 13 shows Satan to be the animating power of the political beast, and Paul discerned that the coming of the man of lawlessness, a political figure, was after the working of Satan, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Pergamum was the center for the emperor cult in the province roundabout. The believers were commanded there to say, Caesar is Lord. Satan was also active there in persecuting the church and bringing about the martyrdom of believers such as Antipas. Therefore, Satan's throne and dwelling are said to be there. Revelation 2.13 Satan brings about corruption and lawlessness in the political order, thereby inspiring opposition to the kingdom of God. Satan endeavors to tempt the godly into sinning. Matthew 4, 1, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, 
1 Thessalonians 3.5, thereby gaining the title of tempter. He incites to apostasy and murmuring. 1 Corinthians 10.10 The Holy Spirit gives a new heart to God's people, and thus God is said to work in believers. Philippians 2.13 Also 1 Corinthians 12.6 Ephesians 3.20 Colossians 1.29 Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. By contrast, Satan appeals to the old heart of the sinner and energetically works in him. Since he works in the children of disobedience, they walk according to Satan, Ephesians 2, 1-2, so that they follow the desires of the sinful nature, verse 3. Unbelievers are viewed as the work of the enemy, Matthew thirteen twenty eight. They are sons of the evil one, being tares sown by him in God's field, the world. Matthew thirteen thirty eight. He would gladly overrun the kingdom of God, destroying it by people whose lives he has already spiritually destroyed. Not only does Satan tempt men to sin, play upon their sinful natures, and propagate rebellion against the gospel in the world, he actually puts sin within the heart of the reprobate. Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus Christ, John thirteen two compared also with Luke 22.3. And at the Last Supper, Satan entered Judas, leading him to carry out the wicked deed, John 13.27. Satan also put the sin of lying in the heart of Ananias, Acts 5.3. Satan is constantly scheming to prod, provoke, and produce sin with man, thereby effecting spiritual death. As the author of disobedience, Satan once had the power of its consequence, death, though not with respect to God's people apart from God's permission, Exodus 12.23, Job 1.12, and 2.6. Hence, Hebrews 2.14 speaks of him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Like darkness and destruction, death is not part of God's order, but is the realm, the ethical realm, of Satan. He tries to make death subservient to his ends, enticing men to follow after the ways of death rather than the way, the truth, and the life. He is the destroyer of the natural man's ethical integrity and spiritual life. Satan also works his havoc in the world of thought, which explains why Scripture designates him a liar. John eight forty four. He works to distort God's word. Galatians 4, 8-9, snatch it away when it is preached, Matthew thirteen nineteen, and replace it with the doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Unbelievers lack a genuine knowledge of the truth because they are caught in the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy two twenty six. One of Satan's key tasks is the deception of the world, and so he is known as the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation twelve nine and for example, 1 John 2.22 and 4.2. Toward that end, he corrupts the mind of man, 2 Corinthians 11.3, making it prone to be led astray. He also has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
This causes the unregenerate to serve Satan as though he were their God, as seen in Romans 1, 18-25. By initiating sin, Satan became responsible for its consequences. In this case, an inability to perceive the splendor of the gospel, which can only mean final damnation. Through his lies, Satan became a murderer as well, as seen in John 8.44. The destructive work Satan does in the world of thought is especially dangerous, for he can make rebellion and lies seem plausible and right. Since his dominion is that of darkness, Luke 22.53, Acts 26.18, Ephesians 6.12, Colossians 1.13, he has nothing in common with the realm of light. 2 Corinthians 6.14. However, Satan proceeds to imitate God, as seen in 1 John 1.15, by masquerading as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11.14. His subtlety is unsurpassed. He does not make his erroneous doctrines appear for what they are, the fabrication of a wicked mind, but disguises them as wholesome or reasonable options. Since Satan does not abide in the truth, he works hard to destroy man's stand in the truth, using any device he can in order to deceive, corrupt, and blind man's thinking. Another central activity of Satan is the slandering of God's people. Revelation 12.10 he brings false accusations against them in order to see to their spiritual death. Thus, he is a murderer, John 8.44. But his murderous designs extend beyond the spiritual realm to the physical world as well. As well as delivering slander, the devil creates persecution for the godly. When the Jews sought to kill Jesus, John 8.40-41, he said that they were following the desires of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning, verse 44, referring to the diabolical origin of Cain, who murdered his brother, 1 John 3.12. Satan inspires persecution and martyrdom for Christians, Revelation 2, 9-10. Knowing that his time is short, Satan operates on earth with great wrath, Revelation 12.12. 12. Therefore, Christians must be serious and alert about Satan, 1 Peter 5.8. For their adversary walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan traverses the earth and has access to us, as seen in Job 2.2. Many commentators have misinterpreted the allusion in 1 Peter 5.8 by overlooking the fact that it is Satan's walk, not himself personally, that is likened to a lion, and by failing to take cognizance that it is a roaring lion, not a stealthy, stalking lion, that Peter takes for comparison to Satan's walk. Satan is not himself a lion, but his walk, or behavior in the world, can be likened to the walk of a roaring lion. A roaring lion was an Old Testament symbol for savage opposition and one's enemies. Psalm twenty-two thirteen through fourteen, Proverbs twenty-eight fifteen, Isaiah five twenty-nine, Zephaniah three three. To be saved from the lion's mouth was a figure for deliverance from one's persecutor. Psalm twenty-two twenty-one, 
2 Timothy 4.17 Lions do not roar when sneaking up on their prey, for obvious reasons. Instead, they roar in order to instill fear and to express a ferocious nature, for example, Judges 14.5, or as part of a vicious attack upon an intruder, for example, in Daniel 6.22. Thus, the lion's roar was metaphorical for the wrath and threat of a monarch, Proverbs 19.12 and 22. In 1 Peter 5.8, we do not see Satan represented in his secret and subtle activities as the adversary of God's people. We see him as the ferocious threat brought by persecutors, especially political oppressors, against believers. Peter explains the threat of the roaring lion as sufferings in the next verse, and in 4.12, he had forewarned his readers of the fiery trial that was soon to descend upon them. As the lion seeks someone to devour, so Satan walks through the earth activating physical persecution against Christians. He would try to drive them to faithlessness and apostasy through the violent opposition he engenders. In the short time that he has left to him, Satan expresses great wrath against God's people. If he cannot destroy them by deception, he aims to destroy them spiritually through fear or to destroy them physically through martyrdom. So then we have seen Satan's destructive influence in the physical world, for example, sickness, the political world, for example, lawlessness, the spiritual world, for example, temptation, sin, death, the intellectual world, for example, distorting, deceiving, blinding, the ethico-judicial realm, for example, slander before God, and the social realm, for example, violent persecution. Everything he comes into contact with is degraded and destroyed. Shortly before the return of Christ in final judgment on the world, Satan will be released from the restraints that are now upon him, so that he will pursue his destructive bent with even greater intensity. Revelation 20:7 through 10. He will deceive again with the effectiveness he had in the Old Testament era. He will inflict plague and disease on the earth. He will turn the nations and kings of the earth against the Messiah and his church with severe persecution. Lawlessness and apostasy will characterize the day. But that day will be a short period in contrast to the long era of gospel prosperity which precedes it. That day does serve to impress upon us the nature and effect of Satan's operations. It illustrates the appropriateness of his title, Destruction and Destroyer. The Dung God, or Lord of the Flies, Beelzebul. The fact that Satan is to be loosed at the end of the present era, working his final deeds of darkness on earth, has somehow misled many theologians to interpret his titles, Prince of this World and God of this Age, as though he were presently the dominant force in world history. They see these epithets as teaching that Satan has all power and authority in this dispensation and in the province of planet Earth. Satan's destructive work at the very end of this era is erroneously taken to explain the status of Satan at the present time. 
since it is assumed that the world is virtually under Satan's control until the Battle of Armageddon, Prince of this world and God of this age are correspondingly taken to mean that the spatio-temporal realm that now exists is under Satan's management. But this is to misinterpret the titles. It is also to overlook the fact that Satan is loosed at the end of the era to exercise his great destructive influence. He does not have that extensive influence until he is loosed by God from present restraints. That means that the degree of sway he has in world history at present is not continuous with the degree he will have in the final brief period of history. That period will be extraordinary. It will surpass the ordinary influence of Satan because of his unloosening. Therefore, the titles applied to Satan above must be understood in terms of Satan's present restricted status and not interpreted in terms of his future extraordinary sway in the world. What then does it mean that Satan is the prince of this world and the god of this age? If it does not mean that he has the upper hand in directing world affairs, determining the results of evangelism, deceiving the thinking of men, and sowing discord in every area of life, how should we understand these phrases? I would maintain that they cannot be properly interpreted until we have ascertained the meaning of world and this age, as they are used by the writers who record the titles for us. It is quite common for the term world to be used not in a geographic sense, but in an ethical sense. Here it denotes the immoral realm of disobedience rather than the all-inclusive extensive scope of creation. The world represents the life of man apart from God and bound to sinful impulses. Thus, when scriptural writers speak of the world, they often mean the world insofar as it is ethically separated from God. Paul contrasts godly sorrow to the sorrow of the world. The former brings salvation, while the latter leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7.10 If world here meant the geographic scope of creation, embracing all men and things, then the sorrow of the world would include the sorrow of any and all men who live in the world thus precluding the possibility of any earth-dweller repenting with godly sorrow and finding salvation. Furthermore, the juxtaposition of godly with worldly would require that world denotes a location rather than an ethical state, and that godly correspondingly denote a physical realm or location. Otherwise, Paul's contrast would not be categorical and mutually exclusive. That is, some sorrow could be simultaneously godly and located in the world. Paul is clearly using world for the unethical state of sinful rebellion, and thus can contrast it to the ethical state of godliness. In Colossians 2.8, Paul apologetically explains the elementary principles of the world as philosophy which is not according to Christ. Hence, the elements of the world, for example, Galatians 4.3, stand in direct antithesis to Christ. Here, the world is the unethical sphere of opposition to Christ. In Philippians 2.15, Christians are called lights of the world. 
that is, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. The world is not each and every human being, but rather the generation which is perverse and crooked. The term is qualitative rather than quantitative. It has an ethical, not geographical, focus. The world in its wisdom knows not God, and God makes the world's wisdom foolish. 1 Corinthians one twenty and 21, also 3.19. The world is that realm which is under God's condemnation. 1 Corinthians 11.32. For to walk according to the course of this world is to follow Satan and to be a son of disobedience, and therefore a child of wrath. Ephesians 2.2-3. From these verses, it is evident that world denotes the ethical sphere of sinful rebellion. This use of the term is not exclusive to Paul. James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God, James 4.4. Thus, true religion is to keep oneself unspotted from the world, James 1.27. Again, the world is obviously being used in an ethical sense for sinful pollution and antagonism to God. Peter speaks of the corruption that is in the world, 2 Peter 1.4, and the defilements of the world, 2.20, thereby utilizing the term world in the same way that Paul and James use it. It is especially to be noted that the Apostle John thinks of the world as the domain of disobedience, disbelief, and darkness. The world is in sin and therefore needs to be saved. John 129, 3.17, 4.42, 12.47, The world is the place of darkness, ethically speaking, into which the light, God's holy Son, Jesus Christ, has shone. John 3.19.8.12.95.12.46 The world is spiritually dead, and thus needs life given to it. John 6.33-51 This clearly demonstrates that world cannot be taken in a natural sense, for the world, understood descriptively as the created order, is animated and alive. It is in an ethical or spiritual sense that the world needs life. To be from beneath, that is, of your father, the devil, 8.44, is to be of this world, 8.23. Consequently, Jesus categorically affirmed, even though he was born of a human mother on earth, that he was not of this world. Even though Jesus powerfully sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the world could not receive, behold, or know him. John 14.17, also 1 Corinthians 2.14. The world is that aspect of humanity that rebels against the truth and is unregenerate. Consequently, the elect are not of the world. John 15.19, 17.14 and 16, even though they are chosen out of the world. John 17.6 and 9. John's ethical use of the term world for the realm of sin is perhaps nowhere so clear as in 1 John 2, 15-17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eye, and the vainglory of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth for ever. The world knows not God, 1 John 3, 1, and therefore hates the Christian brotherhood, 3, 13, which indicates that world denotes a subclass of humanity, one which is ethically qualified. Those who are worldly listen to those who are likewise worldly and not of God. 1 John 4, 5-6 John summarizes this contrast between the saved and the lost, the realm of light and life, and the realm of darkness and death, the sphere of righteousness and the sphere of wickedness, by saying, We know that we are of God, but the whole world lieth in the evil one. 1 John 5, 19 The world is not the geographical created order, nor is it the whole of humanity. It is that aspect of reality, that portion of humanity, which is in the grip of Satan and not of God. The world is positioned in the evil one and does not have its source in God. The world is that realm which is dominated by Satan and his standards. It is correspondingly appropriate that Satan is designated by John as he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. The world is in Satan, and Satan is in the world. This confirms the ethical understanding of the term world, which has been discussed above, for the created realm certainly does have its origin in God and has God imminent to it. Thus, the world, which is not of God but is characteristically in and occupied by Satan, cannot be identified with created reality or the whole of humanity. The world must be interpreted, in the above passages, as an unethical spiritual realm, the kingdom of darkness, the city of reprobate man. From the fact that this world is interchangeable with this age, for example in 1 Corinthians one twenty and following, 2.16.3.19, we infer that the phrase this age can also be understood as referring to an ethical or spiritual realm rather than exclusively to a set period of time. From the perspective of New Testament theology, the age to come has broken in on this age. Those who are saved now enjoy the presence of the future age. With the first advent of Christ, God's ordained moment has arrived, Galatians 4.4. 4. The kingdom has drawn near, Matthew 3.2.4.17.10.7, Mark 1.15, Luke 10.9 and 11. The great jubilee has arrived, Luke 4, 16-21. The good news of the kingdom has come into effect, Luke 16, 16, Matthew 11, 2-15. The Old Testament promise has been realized, Romans 1, 2, 16, 25-26. The messianic marriage supper has approached, Mark 2, 18-22. With the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, the last days of Joel's prophecy have arrived, and God's anointed is declared to be permanently enthroned in David's kingdom. Acts 2. This spirit is our down payment, earnest, on future inheritance. 2 Corinthians 1.22, 5.5, Ephesians 1.14. And the first fruits of the resurrection order, Romans 8.23, 1.23. 
and also Colossians 1.18. The kingdom of God and coming age have been installed. After a long period of anticipation, God has now spoken to us by His Son at the end of these days. Hebrews 1.2 Christ has been manifested at the end of the ages. Hebrews 9.26 In the last times, 1 Peter 1.20 Consequently, the ends of the ages has arrived. 1 Corinthians 10.11 The eschatological age has already begun, which means that this age and the age to come are coexistent during the present era. God's kingdom of salvation is already experienced by some, but rejected by others. The coming age and this age live side by side for a time. The redemptive work of Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness. Colossians 1.13 That is, from this present evil age. Galatians 1.4 being in Christ, in contrast to being in the evil one, 1 John 5.19, means that the new creation has dawned, making the old things new, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and also 6.2. Therefore, it is now possible for men to taste the power of the coming age, Hebrews 6.5. Two orders, old creation and new creation. Spiritual death and regeneration, damnation and salvation, are presently operative, and the Bible expresses this fact by teaching that this age and the coming age are currently contemporaneous. It should be evident from what has just been said that this age denotes an ethical sphere more than a temporal dispensation. This age is the realm of evil which stands in diametric contrast to redemption. Galatians 1.4 It is the opposite of a renewed mind and holy living. Romans 12.2 Everything has been subjected under Christ and the all things over which he reigns, in blessing and in curse, are analyzed into this age and the coming age. Ephesians 1.21-22 To walk according to this worldly age, then, is to be a child of wrath and follower of Satan, rather than to enjoy the blessings of the coming age. Ephesians 2, 2-7 It is to be part of the kingdom of darkness, which is antagonistic to the kingdom of God's dear Son. The wisdom of this age is contrary to godly wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.20, 2-6, 3.18 which does not mean that Christian philosophy is impossible during this era, but that godly thinking is antithetical to the deluded wisdom of unbelievers. That this age applies to the realm of rebellion against God is easy to see from 2 Timothy 4.10, where we learn that to love the present age is to forsake the kingdom of God. The cares of the age are deceitful lusts which choke God's word. Mark 4.19 Consequently, this age, or the present age, are at base the domain of sin. To live in the midst of the present age is identical with living amidst ungodliness. Titus 2.12 Therefore, we conclude that this world and this age both denote the immoral 
realm of disobedience against God. The life of man apart from God, the ethical sphere which is antagonistic to God, rather than geographic and temporal spheres. While this age and this world are found in space and time, they are not fundamentally spatio-temporal entities. They are the spiritual kingdom of darkness. It is with this in mind that we can properly understand the designations of Satan as the prince of this world. John 12.31, and God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. These titles mean something quite different from the interpretation that is often given for them in these days. They are not indications that Satan's power in the present era and on planet Earth are immense, nor do they mean that God's kingdom must, by definition of Satan as a prince and God, be largely unsuccessful or non-influential until some alleged future binding of Satan. The present era in the created realm is not in the masterly grip of Satan, and it is simply wrong to support such an idea from Satan's being called Prince of this World and God of this Age. These epithets simply mean that Satan heads up the unethical realm of disobedience. He is the captain of the ungodly and disbelieving, the Prince of Darkness. By labeling him Prince of this World, Scripture does not acknowledge any authority of his over the entire created realm. Rather, it consciously dichotomizes the created order, seeing that the ungodly element of it, that is, the world, is led by the evil one, Satan. By labeling him God of this age, Scripture does not acknowledge him as having the dominating sway in world history up until the Battle of Armageddon. Instead, it consciously distinguishes between the kingdom of God, the coming age, and the unrighteous forces of history, that is, this age, and accordingly views the worthless, lawless one, Satan, as head over the latter. These titles, then, merely indicate that Satan is the ruler over all who share his wicked nature. He leads one kingdom while Christ governs another kingdom. The meager fact that Satan is captain of the ungodly, which is all that prince of this world and god of this age mean, tells us nothing about his strength and influence in the created realm, including human society, during the present era. Indeed, if anything, these titles are derisive with respect to Satan's status and power. Whereas the living and true God makes his deity manifest to men, Romans 1, 19-20, Satan can secure a following of himself as God only by blinding his vassals, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age is, in reality, a no-God, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Galatians 4, 8, also seen in Psalm 96, 5. Deuteronomy 32.17 For God alone is the King of the Ages. 1 Timothy 1.17 The title, Prince of this World, is first introduced for Satan right after Jesus has said, Now is the judgment of this world. 
and just before he claims to call all men to himself. John twelve thirty one through 32 Thus, in calling Satan the prince of this world, Jesus is certainly not paying him anything but a sarcastic compliment. Satan rules over a judged realm where he cannot hold man's allegiance. Jesus here indicated that, while the cross may have appeared a victory for Satan, to blinded eyes, in reality it was his undoing. The epithets, God of this age and Prince of this world, have been shown to mean that Satan is the leader or ruler of the ungodly. We should summarize here what the New Testament says about his influence on unbelievers. The unchanged heart is under satanic control. To be in the state of unbelief is to be under the power of Satan, for conversion is basically a permanent turning from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Acts 26.18 In contrast to believers who are in Christ, 1 John 3.24 and 4.15, the whole unbelieving world is described as lying in the evil one, 1 John 5.19, just as God works in believers, as seen in Philippians 2.13. Satan is at work in the children of disobedience, Ephesians 2.1-2, intoxicating them and then catching them alive to do his bidding, which is why Scripture says unbelievers must be recovered out of the snare of the devil, 2 Timothy 2.26, also 1 Timothy 3.7. Because unbelief is the work of Satan, unbelievers are considered his sons, Matthew 13.28 and 38. The children of Satan do his deeds, John 8.41, partake of his desires, verse 44. Reject the word of God, verses 43, 46, 47. Pervert the ways of the Lord. Turn men aside from the faith and are enemies of all righteousness, Acts thirteen ten. There is no middle category. All men fall into one of two classes. They are either born of God, as seen in John 1, 12 through 13, or are children of the evil one, being from below and of the world, as seen in John eight twenty three and seventeen sixteen. John tells us how we may discern the children of the devil. He that doeth sin is of the devil. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. 1 John 3, 8 and 10. John goes on to give an illustration. Cain, who murdered his brother, manifested that family to which he belonged by his moral likeness to the head of his family. Those who fail to evidence righteousness and brotherly love give patent signs of their unregenerate satanic character. We must not be deceived. One's spiritual lineage is determined by his ethical resemblance to the family head either Jesus Christ, the righteous, or the devil. Verse 7. While the influence of Satan upon believers is manifest in their wicked deeds, Satan is even more interested in making them religious people. 
Nothing is more deceptive than a religious sinner. Far from concentrating on the seamy areas of life to find satanic results, we should rather look from the pub and parlor to the pulpit. Here, the mastermind of Satan is evident as he deceives men into thinking that they are not following him when in fact they are. Because of the blindness and spiritual dullness of unbelief, unbelievers are easily led to worship demons. Revelation 9.20 Adhere to the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 And follow satanic ministers. 2 Corinthians 11. 13 through 15. Men will think of themselves as endorsing the true religion and being God's people, but they can do it in self delusion. The assembly of those who falsely claim to be God's people, as seen in Romans 2:25 and verses 28 through 29, are in actuality a synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2:9. The worship of demons is manifest in two ways. First, there is the participation in pagan rites, which brings us into contact with demonic powers. 1 Corinthians 10.20 The fact that idols are no gods does not render them neutral and harmless. For when we join in and have community with those who practice false worship, we have communion with demons. The second form of demon worship is Satanism. Those who worship the beast in the book of Revelation, that is, give implicit obedience to ungodly Rome and stand in awe of its threatening might, are those who also worship the dragon, Satan, Revelation 13.4. They replace the rule of God and God's law over them with the claims and regulations of the lawless state, Revelation 13.16, also Deuteronomy 6.6 6 and 8. Revelation 14, 1 and 9. Therefore, demon worship can be found in both church and state. It must not be thought, however, that those who would mislead people to sit in the synagogue of Satan and worship demons are easy to detect, as though they portray themselves openly as priests of Satan and the occult. In reality, those who blatantly represent themselves as devil devotees are relatively less harmful than those who are ministers of Satan in disguise. These wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew 7.15, can be found in established denominations, attaching the name Christian to themselves and staying within the traditions of the church. They fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness and work within the church structure. Following their master's example, they masquerade as angels of light, with cunning disguises, including turnaround collars. They mislead the minds of men with heterodox doctrine and lawless ethics. Paul says that the ministers of Satan fashion themselves as ministers of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15 Those who would deceive the bride of Christ, the Church, with another gospel or Savior are as much emissaries of Satan, despite their pretenses, as was the serpent who beguiled the bride of Adam, Eve. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 
Through his disguise as an angel of light, Satan has captured and dominated unorthodox, liberal, and neo-orthodox churches, as well as the Christian sects or cults. He has also infiltrated confessionally orthodox churches with ministers who pretend to represent the light, either doctrinally or ethically, but in reality spread the works and thoughts of darkness. Such pseudo-ministers of righteousness and light bring with them doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 Paul warned Timothy that in latter times men would be seduced by spirits to follow demonic teaching. These later times were Timothy's own day, for Paul felt it important to make Timothy cognizant of these demonic doctrines as a present threat, as seen in verses 6 and following. At the time of writing, Timothy was laboring at the church in Ephesus, to whom Paul had given warning that grievous wolves were about to enter, Acts twenty twenty nine. These false teachers, masquerading as ministers of righteousness, brought with them heretical and ascetic doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, 3. They encouraged Christians to withdraw from God's creation and become otherworldly in a platonic or gnostic fashion. Such an abandonment of the historical realm to Satan and his host is just the kind of doctrine demons would propagate. And when people abandon the great commission of discipling the nations and making society follow the pattern of God's law, as seen in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 that is, when they forsake a full confrontation with the real enemy, their demonic doctrine leads them to do battle within the church instead. Demonic wisdom, James three fifteen through 16 tells us, is from below, bringing jealousy, faction, and vile deeds. Unlike the attitude which would crush Satan, demonic doctrine is not peaceable. James 3.17, also Romans 16.20. The prince of this world and God of this age, therefore, blinds the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4.4, committing them to the realm of unconverted darkness, ensnaring them, fathering their rebellious thoughts and deeds, and even making them adhere to the synagogue, worship, and doctrine of Satan and his demons in the name of light and righteousness. He transforms God's good creation and the men who have been created as God's image into refuse. He makes waste of the unbelieving world. He is, then, not the powerful authority over the created realm in this era, as prince of this world and god of this age have so often been taken. He is merely the leader of a destroyed humanity, a godless generation, a kingdom of unethical darkness and spiritual death. He is, in short, Beelzebub, as seen in Matthew 12.24, Mark 3.22, Luke 11.15. By a play on words, the Jews of Christ's day had changed Beelzebub, a title for Satan taken from the Philistine god by that name, Lord of the Flies, as seen in Second Kings 1, 2, and following, into Beelzebul, that is, Baal-zebul, or Lord of the Dung. In utter contempt for the work of Satan, people came to call him the Dung God. While God created all things good and delightful, 
Satan has set out to rework creation into that which is wicked and despicable. The fitting emblem, then, for that over which he is God, is dung. He is the prince of darkness, despair, deceit, and death. His destructive work in the children of disobedience warrants calling him prince of this world and god of this age. But those labels are best interpreted by concluding that Satan is simply Beelzebul, the dung god. He is legitimate leader over only refuse and waste. When Paul was delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, Colossians 1.13, he came to consider all things which are outside of Christ and his dominion as loss and dung. Philippians 3.8 That realm which is outside of Christ is this world, or this age, and the captain of that obnoxious realm is Satan. Our Adversary, Satan Having surveyed the work of Satan in unbelievers, we should also analyze his destructive operations with respect to believers. His opposition to them merits the designation of Satan, or Adversary. That one title summarizes an entire aspect of Satan's work in the world. Satan basically means opponent. The term is used, for example, in Matthew 4.10, John 13.27, Acts 5.3, Acts 26.18, Romans 16.20, 1 Timothy 5.15, and Revelation 12.9. And thus, Satan is denominated our adversary in 1 Peter 5.8. Satan is a wicked angel who does his utmost to present opposition to the people of God. It must always be kept in mind that whatever Satan does in opposing God's people, he can only do it at the permission of God. This is well illustrated in the case of Simon Peter. Satan had to ask God's permission to sift the apostle like wheat, hoping to find that he was only chaff. Luke 22:31. The allusion to Job in the Old Testament is manifest. Satan's aim is to discredit those who are part of God's kingdom, showing, or really slandering, that they have no right to be included in God's blessing. However, in attempting to bring about apostasy, Satan is not free to assail us at will and with whatever power suits him. Because he needs God's permission, we are assured that we shall never be tempted beyond endurance or without a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Satan shall not be successful with genuine believers, and hence, contrary to his wishes, his evil work is twisted to a good end, refining rather than destroying the believer's faith. For example, Peter is sifted as wheat in the long run, not as chaff. It must not be forgotten that even when Satan has to leave to work on Christians, Jesus is making supplication for them in order that their faith fail not. Luke 22.32 We learn from this example, then, that Satan tries to destroy the regenerating and sanctifying work of God in the believer. Paul worried that, in time of trial, the tempter would have tempted the Thessalonians and rendered the apostles' work vain. 1 Thessalonians 3.5 Satan wishes to expose spurious faith, and thus he continues to tempt and work upon people even after their apparent conversion and profession of trust in Christ. 
In 1 Timothy 5.15, we read of certain widows who indeed had turned aside to Satan, giving in to immoral conduct, and thus providing occasion for the adversary to do what he most wants to do, slander and reproach those who bear Christ's name. Verse 14. Toward that end, Satan even takes advantage of godly activities. For example, sexual abstinence for the sake of prayer perverting them into an opportunity for seduction to sin, for example, either depriving the partner or adultery. 1 Corinthians 7.5 Even those who appear to have the graces necessary for leadership in the church can, through pride, fall into the condemnation which is wrought by the devil and which is shared by the devil. 1 Timothy 3, 6-7 the sovereignty of God is displayed in the fact that he uses the destructive work of Satan to further his own ends. Paul was sent a messenger from Satan, a thorn in the flesh who buffeted him and thereby prevented him from being exalted over much. 2 Corinthians 12.7 This stake for the flesh could have been a non-physical burden to bear, but more likely it was a bodily infirmity as seen in Galatians 4, 13-14. A satanic messenger would, if working spiritually upon Paul, seem to further rather than curtail pride, as seen in 1 Timothy 3, 6, James 4, 6-7, and consequently an unavoidable and aggravating bodily affliction would seem more effective in restraining runaway self-exaltation. But whatever kind of buffeting this messenger from Satan represented, it was used by God, just as in the case of Job, for his servant's good, as seen in Hebrews 12.10. Against his contrary intents, God utilized Satan's work for the cause of sanctification. Another illustration of the same principle is found in the case of church discipline at the point of excommunication. When one in the church is guilty of unrepentant immorality, Paul commands that he be delivered unto Satan, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, that is, placed in the realm of Satan or excommunicated from the church, as seen in 1 Corinthians 5.2 and 13. He is to be regarded as unsaved and under the power of darkness. The purpose for which he is abandoned to the devil, however, limits or restrains Satan's work. It is not for ultimate punishment, but eventual restoration, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Deliverance unto Satan, then, aims at remedying the sinful situation which has arisen in the life of him who was excommunicated. 1 Timothy 1.20 Whatever the effect of Satan's destruction of the flesh in these cases, whether producing revulsion from the taste of sin, for example, Luke fifteen thirteen through 19 or inflicting bodily harm, as seen in Acts 5, 1 through 11, 13, 9 through 11, 2 Corinthians 10, 8, 12, 7, 13, 10, and especially 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. We again see that God uses Satan's work for promoting rather than destroying the cause of his kingdom. The Christian is not ignorant of Satan's devices, and hence he should never gain an advantage over the believer. 2 Corinthians 2.11 
the passage here cited shows that to have an unforgiving spirit is to grant satan an opening to which he has no right to grasp more than his due to seize what does not belong to him in the case of the man guilty of gross immorality as seen in first corinthians five satan had been given the right to work destruction of his flesh probably indicating his sinful nature but now satan was trying to gain even more using the church's unforgiving spirit in the face of the sinner's repentance for the destruction of him and the church christians should not be ignorant of such purposes or plots or devices as satan cunningly utilizes he would gladly further a legitimate end such as an ecclesiastical purity through ungodly means such as a harsh spirit this is just another example of his deceptive work drawing men into what might seem a good project but in reality using them to further wickedness in second corinthians two eleven however paul makes a point that satan should not gain such a toehold with christians they know what he is scheming to do the christian strategy against the destructive work of satan in his personal or ecclesiastical life then first of all includes resisting the devil james four seven because satan will quickly latch onto any opportunity to turn good actions and attitudes into evil deeds for example transforming righteous anger into sinful wrath the christian must not compromise but resist thus paul commands neither give place to the devil ephesians four twenty seven in his fight with the adversary the believer is assured that he shall conquer but because satan's methods are crafty and deceptive the christian must utilize the armor of god all of it to a city full of demonology ephesus paul writes that the christian struggle is not with flesh and blood but with demonic influences although satan has many fiery arrows to shoot at us and although his methods are crafty the believer is protected from them by the shield of faith ephesians six eleven through twelve and sixteen using faith's shield is the second element in the christian's strategy peter who before he had been induced by satan to deny the lord commands us to withstand satan steadfast in the faith first peter five nine revelation twelve nine through eleven shows that the devil is overcome by faithful testimony even when it entails going to one's death the third element in the christian strategy against the personal attacks of satan is prayer christ gave us a way of escape by teaching us that we should pray for a divine protection which cannot fail in the lord's prayer we are instructed to pray bring us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one matthew six thirteen. we see then that satan is the christian's adversary always tempting him to apostasy and moral inconsistency satan works hard to pervert righteousness into wickedness by deceiving the believer in various ways however even though satan slanders the people of god and attempts to trip them up he ultimately serves the purposes of god in refining sanctifying and reclaiming his chosen people 
the Christian is not ignorant of Satan's plots, and thus he can gain personal victory over him by resistance, faith, and prayer. Although the devil does not leave us alone, the believer's perspective on Satan is that of triumphing over him and his devices. Satan is under God's control, depends on him for permission to carry out his work, serves the ends of God's kingdom, and he is defeated by God's people as they wear the whole armor of God. The adversary must be taken seriously, but not feared. The One Cast Down from Heaven Christians should take great assurance and comfort in their confrontation with the kingdom of Satan from the fact that Scripture portrays him as deposed from that position of strength he had prior to the coming of Christ. During the Old Testament era, Satan held sway over the nations, constantly deceiving them into superstition and idolatry. He wrought havoc in the kingdom of God as well, leading Israel into heterodoxy and idolatrous apostasy throughout her history. From the worship of the golden calf at Sinai to the murder of the Messiah at Calvary, having induced Adam and Eve to rebel against God, Satan continued to dominate the descendants of Adam, keeping the following of God down to a minimal righteous remnant among the nations, and an even smaller righteous remnant within the nation of Israel. Ungodliness was rampant in the world, so much so that God in his wrath destroyed all but eight persons in the great flood. Ungodliness continued to reign among the sons of Noah, as Babel and Sodom stand out as illustrations of the rebellion of men against God. Following the Exodus, both the gross immorality and idolatry of the nation were punished by holy war. However, the nation waging such war soon fell into cycles of apostasy during the time of its judges. The nation gained a king only to descend soon into civil war and division. Later, having learned to avoid idolatry through the punishment of exile, the Jews subsequently turned to the sins of secularism, or Sadduceeism, and self-righteousness, Phariseeism. If Satan was thus so influential within God's chosen nation, one can imagine the extent of depravity fostered by the pagan nations. The world lay in deception, darkness, and spiritual death prior to the advent of Jesus Christ, for Satan operated with a strong hand and few restraints. However, the Messiah's advent effected a radical change in Satan's status, greatly deposing him of his power over human society. The advent of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, triggered an outburst of satanic activity. Satan exercised the extent of his powers in an attempt to extinguish the light of Christ with the darkness of sin rebellion, and demon possession. Thus the accounts of exorcism in the Gospels are not incidental to the good news that God's kingdom has been established. Satan's intensified activities only provided a background against which Christ's overthrow of his power would be the more conspicuous. Exorcisms performed by Christ were an outward manifestation of the great confrontation taking place between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God, between this age and the coming age. 
the gospels are nothing less than an account of the cosmic struggle between god's messianic son and satan zechariah thirteen two had prophesied that the establishment of the redemptive kingdom of god would mean the removal of unclean spirits in retrospect peter described the ministry of christ as that of healing those oppressed by the devil acts ten thirty eight passing note should be made that peter's mention of oppression is intended to summarize the various influence of satan not to introduce a new category of operation oppression in addition to possession christ's ministry signalized the establishment of the promised kingdom of god for he had the power to cast out the unclean spirits as seen in mark one twenty seven his curing of demoniacs was in fulfillment of the old testament promise concerning the suffering servant of the lord matthew eight sixteen through seventeen the demons whom jesus cast out testified to his divinity as seen in mark three eleven they also recognized that the advent of god's son signalized their torment matthew eight twenty nine their commitment to the abyss luke eight thirty one and their destruction mark one twenty three through twenty five jesus' own interpretation of his power to cast out demons was that the kingdom of god had come and that this meant the plundering of satan's house matthew twelve twenty eight through twenty nine god the father confirmed from heaven that jesus had come to do the father's business namely by his death to depose satan of his power and defeat him john twelve twenty three through thirty three christ's power to cast out demons was supremely attested in his casting out the prince of this world from his domain his position of strength in the created realm instead of being under the sway of satan's deceptions men shall now be drawn to christ satan's dominance has been destroyed this overthrow of satan's strength and downfall of his kingdom is vividly described by christ in luke ten eighteen the seventy had returned to christ reporting that even the demons were subject to them in christ's name verse seventeen jesus then reveals what lies behind this subjugation the complete crumbling of satan's authority he says i beheld satan fall like lightning out of heaven satan's exalted power has been broken like a flash of lightning his energy has been spent he has been hurled down from the sky this explains the disciples power over demons the head of the demonic host has been overthrown by christ christ's statement is metaphorical and does not refer to some historical spatial plummeting of the person of satan to the earth's surface rather because satan could not overthrow jesus in the wilderness temptation and because jesus had begun the plunder of satan's kingdom satan's ascendancy is symbolically represented as falling dramatically satan's kingdom has been served a fatal blow by the incarnation unsuccessful temptation and exorcising power of christ the same figure is used in revelation twelve to symbolize the defeat of satan in this chapter satan is symbolized by a great red dragon just as the opponents to god's kingdom are often represented as monsters in the old testament revelation twelve three also job twenty six thirteen psalm seventy four thirteen through fourteen isaiah twenty seven one 
and 51.9, Ezekiel 32.2. This dragon is portrayed as mighty, having ten horns, and hard to kill, having seven heads. His opposition to God's people takes on cosmic dimensions, for he is seen in the sky and is so large that his tail alone sweeps away a third of the stars. 12.4. A significant minority of the created angels, that is, stars, as seen in 9.1, are commanded by him. The one whom he opposes is symbolized by the elements of Joseph's Old Testament dream. 12.1 and also Genesis 37.9. She is a woman travailing to give birth, a common literary picture of Israel in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26.17 and 66.7-9, Micah 4.10 and 5.3. The twelve stars in her crown evidently represent, then, the twelve tribes of Israel, seen in Exodus 28.17-20, Revelation 21. 19 through 20. The woman is the people of God here in the Old Testament form of Israel. The one to whom she is about to give birth is Jesus, the Christ of God. 12.5 and also Isaiah 9.6, Psalm 2.9. This imagery is suggested by the fact that, with respect to the flesh, Israel gave birth to the Messiah. Romans 9.5. When Christ was born, the red dragon attempted to devour him. Revelation 12, 4-5 Satan attempted to destroy Christ at his birth. Matthew 2, 13 and 16 And at his crucifixion. John fourteen thirty, Luke twenty two fifty three. However, John concentrates on the fact that Jesus escaped the attacks of Satan unscathed. It is as though Christ proceeded from his incarnation directly to his ascension. Revelation 12.5 and also Philippians 2.9 He utterly defeated Satan. To symbolize the great spiritual conflict which ensued at the establishment of God's kingdom during Christ's life and ministry, John goes on to describe war in heaven between Satan and his angels on the one hand, and Michael and his angels on the other. The confrontation of Christ's kingdom with Satan's was a cosmic struggle. It involved the battle of good angels with fallen ones. In particular, one should notice the place of the angels of God in the wilderness temptation of Christ. Matthew 4.11 In Revelation 12, Michael, the guardian angel of God's people, Daniel 10.13 and 21, 12.1 and Jude 9 led the angels in war against the satanic host and drove them completely from their position, verses 7 through 8. This means that Satan has been toppled from his place of power. He and his angels were cast down to the earth, verse 9. The one who opposes and slanders God's people that is, he that is called the devil, and Satan, has lost his power. His accusations no longer have force after the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The accuser of our brethren is cast down, who accuseth them before our God day and night. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. 
verses 10 through 11. Through death, Christ brought to nothing the devil's power of death. Hebrews 2.14 And thus Paul can exclaim, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Romans 8.33 Satan has been cast down from heaven, and this deposition took place during the ministry of Christ. It can be seen at the sending of the seventy, as seen in Luke 10.18, and it can be seen at the sacrificial death of Christ, when the prince of the world was cast out, John 12.31. Satan was not able to destroy Christ at his birth or death. He was not able to make him sin at the temptation. He was not able to stop the plundering of his dominion by Christ and the disciples. His hosts were unable to withstand the onslaught of the good angels. The atonement has voided his power of death, and his accusations no longer have any force. In short, the salvation, power, and kingdom of God have come. Revelation 12.10 And Satan has been cast down and defeated. He was hurled like lightning from the sky. His dominion is spent. Revelation 12 goes on to explain that because Satan's power was broken, he was in great frenzy for a short time, persecuting the church, like a roaring lion, as Peter put it, with great wrath, verses 12 through 13. Having lost the spiritual battle, Satan turns to physical persecution against the woman, that is, against the people of God. In particular, he sought to destroy the Jewish church in A.D. 70. However, the woman fled to the wilderness where God protected her for 42 months, verses 6 and 14, which is the length of time given over to the raising of Jerusalem, as seen in Revelation 11.2 and 8, Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, Matthew 24.15 through 28, at which time the Christians fled to Pella, church tradition tells us, according to Christ's directions, as seen in Matthew 24.16, Luke 21.20-21, using the imagery of the Exodus from Egypt, Exodus 15.2.19.4, and also Deuteronomy 32.11, Isaiah 40.31. John says that God's people, the church, would be thoroughly protected from Satan's persecution as they exodus from Jerusalem, Revelation twelve fourteen through 16 Satan thought that by sending the Roman army against Jerusalem, he would destroy the people of God. But instead, as we have seen above, Satan was simply the tool of God's sovereign plan. His wrath was used by God for historical judgment and retribution upon the city which had rejected the Messiah and put him to death, as seen in John 1.11, Luke 19.41-44, and Luke 23.27-31. Consequently, being foiled again, Satan then increased in his wrath and turned to persecute the rest of the woman's seed, that is, other believers, as seen in Galatians 4.26, where Jerusalem above is designated our mother. The enmity placed by God between the serpent and the seed of the woman, as seen in Genesis 3.15, 
is relentless. Satan turned his angry attention upon the Gentile church, those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12.17 However, there again, he is overcome by the word of their testimony. Even should they die for the faith they profess, they would be more than conquerors through Christ. Revelation 12.11 Also Romans 8.35-37 Therefore, Revelation 12 relates the undeniable downfall of Satan's kingdom, the demise of his power, it reveals for us the spiritual backdrop to Satan's opposition to the Messiah and Christ's church. It shows us the war in heaven. Thereby, it assures us that Satan has been conquered by Christ. His kingdom has been overthrown by the elect angels, and believers can overcome him by their testimony. After the advent of Christ and the establishment of his redemptive kingdom, Satan is nothing but one who has been cast down from heaven. The Crushed Serpent It is evident from the previous discussion that Satan's power has declined and been broken. But not only has his power and influence waned, he himself has been thoroughly defeated in the encounter with God's Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, God's promise of salvation entailed the crushing of Satan and simultaneous bruising of Christ's heel. A minor injury to the Messiah would spell the major destruction of Satan. It is the New Testament's testimony that this bruising of the Messiah and crushing of the adversary took place in the first advent of Christ, and in particular at the cross. Consequently, when Christians think about the nature and work of Satan, they must not lose sight of the fact that Satan is presently a crushed serpent, a conquered enemy. Christ our Lord is the one who came to conquer him. Satan attempted to divert Christ from the path of obedience, just as he tempted Adam and Eve to wander from that path. In Christ's case, Satan tempted him to take a wicked course to victory over the nations, worshipping Satan, and therefore conquering the nations without also conquering Satan. Satan wished to mislead Christ from the will of God, to draw him away from the cross as the way to victory. Satan made his attempts directly, Matthew 4, and indirectly through Peter, Matthew 16:23. But in neither way was he able to gain the advantage over the second Adam. Jesus demonstrated that the devil could have no power over him. Therefore, when Jesus was about to end his earthly ministry, seeing in the approaching soldiers the coming of Satan, he declared his intent to meet the enemy with spiritual determination and voluntary obedience to God's direction. No man had the power to take Jesus' life. He alone sovereignly deigned to lay it down. John 10.18 Thus he told his followers that Satan had no hold or claim on him. John 14.30 There was nothing in Christ that came under the dominion of Satan. Hence, the crucifixion did not spell the defeat of Christ at all. Instead, it meant the crushing or overcoming of Satan, as seen in Revelation 12.11.
The lifting up of Jesus meant the judgment of Satan's realm, the world, and the casting out of the devil himself, John twelve thirty one through 33 From that point on, all men would be drawn not to Belair, but to Jesus Christ, indicating the dissolution of Satan's power. The crucifixion turned out to be the devil's undoing. Through his substitutionary atonement for the sins of the elect, Christ released his people from the blinding of Satan and his snare, as seen in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, 2 Timothy 2.26. That blindness and snare would have eventuated in their eternal damnation, the second death. However, Jesus partook of flesh and blood in order that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death that is, the devil. Hebrews 2.14 Christ's death frees his people from the penalty of the law, death, and thus from Satan's power to inflict that penalty. Redemption from the curse of the law, as seen in Galatians 3.13, effects our deliverance out of the power of darkness and translates us into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 Death is no longer a fearful threat to us, as seen in Romans eight fifteen and 21, because Christ has used Satan's utmost power, death, as the instrument of his defeat. Since Christ went to death and overcame Satan thereby, it is now Christ who has authority over death. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades, Revelation one eighteen. Through his redeeming blood, Christians pass from death into life, 1 John 3.14. By him, death itself, and not just Satan, who had power over death, is destined to be destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15.26. Therefore, by his appearing, Jesus Christ has fulfilled God's ancient promise to crush Satan's head. For he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 Nailing our indictment to his cross, Jesus our Savior has despoiled the principalities and the powers. In his resurrection victory over the grave, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them by it. Colossians 2.15 The whole of Christ's life and ministry from his incarnation, obedient life, powerful words, and works to his death, resurrection, and ascension can be categorized as for the purpose of crushing the serpent, Satan. John aptly declares then that to this end was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. That mission of ruining Satan and his effects has been marvelously and mightily accomplished. The Shackled Dragon Based upon the foregoing study, we can conclude by pointing out that Satan is not the formidable foe to Christians and their great commission which so many writers are making him out to be in these days. His opposition must be taken seriously, of course. However, it is important that we do not let it defeat us in our sanctification, evangelization, 
or application of God's standards to every area of life. Because Jesus Christ has defeated and overcome Satan, so also shall Christ's people gain the victory over Satan. His work is no real threat to the progress of God's kingdom. Satan has been bound by Christ, and now his house is being plundered. We would observe first that Jesus gave power over the demons to his disciples. Matthew 10.1, Mark 6.7, Mark 9.38, Luke 10.17, Acts 5.16, Acts 8.7, 16, 16 through 18, and 19, 12. He never meant for the victory to be his alone. He shares his mighty power with believers so that they too defeat the devil and destroy his works. The kind of power which Jesus gives is not something of which the unbelieving world can partake. Even the professional sorcerers do not have the power which is bestowed on Christ's apostles. Acts 8, 9, and 19. And when they try to imitate it, dreadful results rebound upon them, as seen in Acts 19, 13 through 17. Exorcism in Jesus' name is not something to be trifled with. This exclusive power over demons which Jesus has delegated to his followers means two things. First, believers cannot be demon-possessed. There is an utter antithesis between the Holy Spirit and an unclean spirit. Mark three twenty nine through 30 just as their respective descriptions indicate. It is impossible to have the two simultaneously dwell in you. And since greater is he that is in you, namely the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4, the Christian cannot be possessed of a demon. Second, because of the power which accompanies the preaching of the gospel, where the good news of Christ's kingdom has penetrated and taken root, it scatters the darkness and subsequently reduces the occurrence of demon possession in a society. A failure to study the scriptural doctrine of Satan in respect to the eschatological kingdom of God has led many writers today to postulate the possibility of indiscriminate explosions of demon possession. Satan cannot work such havoc where God's kingdom is strong and widely followed. Of course, cultures which apostatize from the truth of the gospel or who endeavor to be neutral toward Christ always face the threat of revived demonic activity, as seen in Matthew twelve forty-three through 45 Secondly, we observe that the New Testament is replete with indications that Christians have the assurance of ethical victory in their encounters with Satan. Jesus Christ, the victor over the devil, prays for his people, that they be kept from the evil one, John seventeen fifteen. His intercession surely avails much, as seen in James five sixteen. Consequently, we can easily set the devil to flight by merely resisting him, James 4, 7. Empowered with the Lord's mighty dominion and wearing the full armor of God, Christians can ably withstand and defeat Satan, Ephesians six ten through 18 because the Holy Spirit in us is greater than the adversary in the world, Satan. We face no insurmountable difficulty in overcoming those of Antichrist and the world, 1 John 4, 3-4. 4. 
this same holy spirit takes as his work with respect to the world the task of bringing to true light the fact that justice has been done to satan just the opposite of his work as our advocate the spirit convicts prosecutes refutes the world with respect to judgment because the prince of this world has been judged john sixteen eight and eleven and also acts two thirty six through thirty seven first corinthians fourteen twenty four the holy spirit makes the definitive defeat of satan manifest just as he progressively defeats satan within the life of the believer moreover just as jesus countered satan with god's word as seen in matthew four so also those who are strong through the word of god abiding in them are privileged to overcome or master the wicked one first john two thirteen through fourteen they are stronger than the strong man himself as seen in matthew twelve twenty nine and as such they can successfully encounter anti-christian doctrine first john four one through four it is evident then that the believer having christ interceding for him and the holy spirit living within him can easily resist and overcome the works of satan by means of the word and the spirit just as satan has nothing in christ john fourteen thirty he that is begotten of god keeps himself and the evil one does not touch him first john five eighteen in his personal life the christian is assured of victory over the influence of satan in the face of the resources at the disposal of the regenerate satan's power is neutralized thirdly even in the face of physical persecution the believer wins the battle over satan peter's discussion of the fiery trial to come upon the church through satan's walking about as a roaring lion is bracketed with reference to christ's mighty dominion first peter four eleven and five eleven satan's onslaughts should be viewed in that context while satan unleashes his destructive fury upon earth revelation nine one through eleven subsequent to the decline of his dominance the disciples of christ are promised authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing in any wise shall hurt you luke ten nineteen when satan's persecution comes it is satan rather than believers who will be trod upon and defeated for even martyrdom cannot rob the christian of his victory the faithful witness for christ is more than a conqueror and always overcomes the wicked one as seen in romans eight thirty five through thirty seven revelation twelve ten through eleven victory over sin and preservation from its power and deadly effects are assured us satan cannot gain an upper hand over us even through physical threatening then not only is the believer's defeat of satan evident with respect to possession temptation and persecution it is also manifestly clear with respect to the prospect of evangelistic success jesus definitely taught in matthew twelve twenty eight through twenty nine that his ability to cast out demons was conclusive evidence that the kingdom of god is come upon you and he declared that this power to destroy satan's kingdom would be impossible unless satan were not already bound 
From this passage we see that it was during the first advent of Christ that both, one, the kingdom of God was established with the effect that, two, Satan was bound by Jesus Christ. The binding of Satan is not a future event any more than the coming of God's kingdom is an exclusively future event. The power of the coming age has already been expressed, and Christ has installed God's redemptive kingdom as part of his messianic work. All this has been amply illustrated in the above discussion. We have also seen previously that the figure of being bound in chains does not represent total immobilization or complete cessation of activity, as seen in Second Peter 2, 4, Jude 6. To be bound with chains is to be restrained in a certain respect. The respect in which Satan is currently bound is explained in Revelation 20, 2-3. Jesus Christ, an angel from heaven with the key of the abyss, as seen in Revelation 1:18, has come to earth and has bound Satan, Revelation 20, 1-2, with Matthew 12, 28-29, Luke ten seventeen through twenty, committing him to the abyss, as seen in Luke eight thirty one, John twelve thirty one, Revelation twelve nine. The effect of this restraint is infallibly explained as that he should deceive the nations no more. Scripture does not go beyond that in interpreting the binding of Satan. That he is bound means that he no longer has the ability to deceive the nations in the way that he did previous to Christ's advent. The power of the proclaimed gospel can shatter Satan's attempt to lead people astray from the truth. Thus, the church is assured of great power and success when it faithfully proclaims the whole counsel of God, as seen in Revelation 19, 11-21. Because Christ now rules the nations, Psalm 2, 8-9, Revelation 12, 5, Revelation 19, 15-16, Satan is unable to deceive the nations. A missionary door of utterance has been opened to the nations for faith which no man can shut, Revelation 3, 7-8, Acts fourteen twenty seven, Colossians 4, 3. The great commission shall be accomplished, and all nations shall be made disciples of Christ. Matthew 28, 18-20, also Revelation 7, 9, 11, 15, 15, 4. Since all power in heaven and earth have been granted to him, and he is ever present with this power in his church. Thus the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans one sixteen. Evangelism and doctrinal edification are activities which the believer can forcefully and successfully engage in, as God brings all nations to serve His Son, as seen in Acts two thirty four through thirty six, Psalm seventy two, Romans one five, Romans fifteen eleven sixteen twenty six. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26, Colossians 1, 27-28, and 2 Timothy 4, 17.
The believer's victory over Satan, therefore, is clear from the fact that Satan cannot prevent the proclamation of the gospel from being prosperous in this age. If the nations are not presently being discipled, it is not because Satan dominates the course of history. It is because Christians, like the church at Thyatira, as mentioned in Revelation 2, 18-29, have come to grant Satan more importance than he deserves, and have failed to exercise their power through God's kingdom proclamation in the world. Believers have the power, via the gospel, to turn people from the power of Satan to God, from darkness to light. Acts 26.18 When the word of God is preached, its prevailing power brings many magicians to conversion, so that they renounce their secret utterances and burn their expensive scrolls. Acts 19.19-20 even those of the synagogue of Satan will be brought to submit to God's kingdom, Revelation 3.9, in fulfillment, though in a way opposite of that expected by the pseudo-Jews, of Isaiah 60.14, Isaiah 49.23, Ezekiel 37.28. The false religions will even be ultimately submissive to the true church. Therefore, in contrast to those who cause conflict by beguiling men with heretical doctrines and by serving their own bellies, the progress of the gospel and God's kingdom will establish peace. Not only has Christ crushed the serpent in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, but his powerful promise to the church is that the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet shortly, Romans 16.20. The church shares in her Savior's triumph over Belial, the prince of the demons, Apollyon, Beelzebul, her adversary, the devil. In the face of God's kingdom and its advance, the one who has been cast down from heaven is a serpent crushed by the Messiah, nothing more than a shackled dragon. Therefore, from this analysis of the person, work, and present status of Satan in the era of the New Covenant, we should learn to be sober with respect to his work in the world, but also to be victorious in overcoming it. The Church must not lose sight of the many facets to the biblical truth about Satan, for when it does, it inevitably engages in a distorted attitude and manner of life. Such a distortion threatens today in the view that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. This is a half-truth with which he would gladly deceive the Church and thereby stifle its discipling activity in the world, discourage it amidst tribulation, worry it with respect to demon possession, and weaken it in temptation. The fact is that while Satan is alive, he is not well. His power and kingdom have fallen, and presently he frantically thrashes out his short remaining time. Christ has deposed him, crushed him, and shackled him. Christ's followers continue to spoil his house. The only lordship he retains is over the despicable elements of life symbolized by dung. However, our closing thought should not concentrate upon our personal privilege in having power and victory over Satan and his works. 
for this is not the most important aspect of our relation to the kingdom of darkness it is possible for one to taste of the powers of the coming age hebrews six five and even to cast out demons and do mighty works in christ's name matthew seven twenty two and yet be reprobate and not known by christ hebrews six six matthew seven twenty three power over satan can be gained temporarily by unbelievers and pseudo-christians but such power possessed in these unethical states is of little eternal value it is kingdom membership that is vital not simply kingdom effects hence christ tells us nevertheless in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven luke ten twenty it is the theocentric thought that we have been delivered from satan's kingdom of darkness deception and spiritual death that should thrill our hearts not merely the anthropocentric blessing of power over satan reflection upon our relationship to satan compels us to praise the grace of god and subsequently to engage the power which it entails so as to subdue the earth under christ's redemptive kingdom if you participate in the outward benefits of that kingdom as it encounters and destroys the domain of satan and yet have no claim to its central blessing you shall eventually encounter satan in a new way as you spend eternity with him matthew seven twenty three and revelation twenty ten this audio version of Victory in Jesus, The Bright Hope of Postmillennialism by Greg L. Bonson has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Dan and Becky Knopp. Please visit cmfnow.com to purchase a hard copy of this book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.